Okay, everybody, we are live. This is Guillermo Escobar Vasquez, and I have today with me the one, the only, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Jones, could for, for my uh, audience, could you uh, give yourself like a short little uh, kind of like introduction about what you're all about, how you kind of arrived in academia, and what kind of message you want to give to the uh, Hispanic audience that I have? Uh, well, um, I got a PhD in American literature in 1979 and decided to start off uh, my career in academia. I got a job as a professor of American literature at St. Mary's College uh, in South Bend, Indiana, and uh, got fired one year after I got here uh, for being against abortion. So uh, I was in a kind of state of shock because I didn't think you could get fired for being against abortion at a Catholic college, but the feminists had taken it over the place. So uh, I decided to get out of academia and it started a magazine. And that magazine is now called Culture Wars. And I've been trying to document what happened to uh, the, uh, it started off talking about the Catholic population, but then it kind of broadened uh, because I found out that it wasn't an intra-Catholic battle. I thought it was liberals versus conservatives at the beginning, but it turns out that there were forces manipulating that um, group of people, manipulating those people within the church. So it was more like Kulturkampf, the German uh, battle over uh, Catholicism uh, when Bismarck took power in 1870. And uh, it broadened to, to start talking about uh, ethnicity uh, because all the Catholics in this country had a specific ethnic identity. Uh, they all came from some place in Europe. They all set up neighborhoods uh, in places like Chicago, Philadelphia. And uh, so I ended up talking about that in a book called Slaughter of Cities. And uh, during the 90s, I was going to California and I was talking to the Mexicans about that and about what, uh, what it was like to be an immigrant group, how the Mexicans were different and how the oligarchs had uh, targeted them. Uh, there was a book that came out in the early 90s called The Hispanic Challenge, and it was by one of the big oligarch thinkers, and his name escapes me at this moment. I but know what it, you're talking about. I've, I've read this, uh, most of what you're referring to, and like, yeah, he's, uh, I forget the, the name exactly as well. I know he's an Anglo-Saxon American writer, right. but the, the primary thesis was that uh, the elites were they were kind of like being a little too, they were being a bit too arrogant in, in their confidence of being able to triumph culturally over Hispanics, mostly because most Hispanic Americans, especially in the Southwest and Florida, they are able to travel back and forth in a way that like Europeans uh, simply weren't many centuries ago. That's right. And it was, uh, if you're talking about California and Florida, they were originally Spanish possessions. They were part of the Spanish uh, empire. And the, uh, as, you, as you're, you're right in saying that this was an unprecedented situation for the United States in terms of migration, because uh, you could drive back home. And um, my ancestors, when they came from Ireland and Germany, uh, you couldn't. And it was uh, a, a, a long and strenuous and dangerous journey to get back. And none of them did it. None of them went back. Neither the German side of the family nor the Irish side of the family ever went back. They, they came over here and that was the last they saw of, of Ireland. And it was only the next generation that got back um, to, to visit the place where these people came from. So, so in, ter in, ter in terms of historical precedent, 
what happened uh, in the United States was a lot similar to what happened in Rome at the end of the Roman Empire, because you had the Goths, who became a very important group, uh, one of the Germanic tribes, uh, only separated uh, from the Roman Empire by the Danube River. Uh, so it was a lot like the Rio Grande and, and Mexico. And and you had huge numbers of people just crossing the river. Uh, and so the whole, the whole process of assimilation in the Roman Empire was basically uh, to take, if you were a Goth, let's say, and you crossed the Danube, they'd send you to Syria uh, as far away as possible. And you would uh, go there and you'd be part of a Roman colony in Syria, completely cut off from your roots. And uh, the only way you could talk to other people was by speaking Latin. So you had to give up your native language, uh, which would be Gothic. And even if if you didn't give it up, you, you could, no one spoke Gothic in Syria. So you were completely cut off and isolated. And this, this was part of the, this has always been part of the uh, issue in the United States of America. In other words, how do you deal with uh, all of these different ethnic groups that come from all over the world? How do you, how do you uh, bring about some type of Americanization of this group of people? It's right. always been a problem for the oligarchs. Can I ask you this, Dr. Jones? Um, so I understand the intricacies of like how complicated it was to go from some, for example, like Ireland to the Midwest, you know, in the 1800s. It was a lot harder than like, you know, currently nowadays. Same with the Polacks and everything, too, that were coming in and other Eastern Europeans who weren't at the uh, top of the white totem pole back then in American history. And my question for you is, do you see right now something similar in terms of like the new uh, European immigrants that are now arriving into America now that these people actually do have a quick plane ride to get back home um, and to travel back and forth in a way that they weren't able to in the past? Because I have a lot of like, um, I guess, sort of like uh, European ethnic uh, listeners as well, you know, from who, whose parents are like Slavic immigrants or places like that. And they too are entering this process that you are advocating for in which you want people to identify with their actual ethnicity and not just being like white or black. Do you see this happening more with European immigrants now, in your opinion? I don't think we're getting any European immigrants, are we? I mean, the, the, I, I, let, me, let, me, let me start backwards, work backwards here. German immigration stopped at the end of the 19th century. German immigration stopped when Bismarck instituted health care and social security. Uh, and and started to raise wages. At that point, there was no, there was really no incentive for Germans to come over here anymore. Uh, right. The 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 Irish, it's a, a different situation, but uh, th there was a large Irish migration here in the nineties, and then they all left. Uh, there was a large Polish migration to Ireland, and they all left. So the the uh, I don't see uh, I don't see European migration anymore in in large scale. Now, part of the reason we don't see this is because. The immigration quotas were changed in the bill. 1965, the uh, Sellers-Javits immigration bill was authored by two Jews. And the Jews did not like this kind of European solidarity that was developing here among the uh, people. And so they decided to bring in people from all over, all these disparate groups. Uh, and at that point, uh, I think you, you, what you, what you lost this kind of uh, European European flavor to migration. Now the difference, as I said, the um, his Mexico Mexico is a completely different situation because it's not Europe; it's Hispanic 
culture, but it's so close that it's simply a completely different situation, only analogous to what I said about the Goths crossing the, the, the Danube. And that's what, that's what honey, Samuel Huntington is the guy's name. That's yes. what he talked about in the, uh, in the book, the Hispanic challenge. So I, I, maybe I'm missing something, but I, I just don't see a lot of European migration here anymore. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely not the bulk of migrants I see. I personally live in the Midwest myself. I would say the more European migrants we tend to get come from like Poland, uh, Russia, Yugoslavia, places like that is usually, especially got a lot of like refugees, especially after the Yugoslavian war in which uh, Bill Clinton just threw gasoline on that fire. But uh, we don't need to go into the specifics of that. So I wanted to ask you something a little bit controversial here, um, but I think it's good. You know, we see that the topic of critical race theory is becoming pop. It's becoming a household name in the United States, right? It wasn't something people were talking about uh, previously for a while. And it seems like critical race theory, based on what I've gathered and look into, is that um, there have been a lot of academic writers that have kind of you know, came up with their ideas of how a whiteness and blackness in America have become these concepts that were not really based in science or anything like that, and that they were more like uh, bureaucratic or sociological constructs, you know, as a way to help uh, forge uh, class and race relations in the United States. Many people have even argued that you played a role in yourself in sort of uh, contributing to the like critical race theory in your own unique way and how you've talked about whiteness in the United States. I kind of want to ask you, like, what do you think of critical race theorists like, for example, Noel Ignatiev, you know, and sort of like Noel's uh, idea of like, for example, of like how the Irish became white in his uh, book that he's infamous for? Yes. I mean, we, uh, we, I think we both agree. I mean, I'm on opposite poles. Well, I, I think he's dead now, but I'm opposite poles about way this is, this is being weaponized. That's the only difference. He is, uh, I think that we both agree that race is a social construct. It is a con it is a category of the mind and it is not a category of reality. It's a category of the mind that was created by oligarchs uh, to divide the population. Now, in the beginning, and by the beginning, what do I mean by the beginning? I mean uh, Virginia in the early 17th century. If you look at the OED, the Oxford uh, English Dictionary on Historical Principles, the first time that white gets applied to people is a play that was written about Virginia. And it, it, it applies to Virginia because you had two uh, groups making up the working class in Virginia. You had the indentured slaves, Scotch-Irish slaves, who were uh, over there either as an alternative to getting hanged for the Jacobite rebellion or something like that. And you had the black uh, slaves from Africa. Uh, and in order to differentiate them, obviously they look different. There's no question about that. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that black people look the same as white people. I'm not saying that. Right. That the category was imposed on the workforce to divide the workforce. And so they gave white a kind of superiority at that point because it was uh, to their advantage. And that has remained the same to this day, except that now it's black privilege. There's no white privilege, but there is black privilege. And it's been delegated to them by the Jews because the Jews have Jewish privilege. And Ignatieff is a Jew. And I think he, I think he's right in saying that this is a social construct and it got imposed for political uh, reasons. I uh, When he says that all white people should die, obviously I don't agree with that, even though I don't consider myself white. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that there was a crucial turning point in American history, 1954, 
a book came out called Protestant Catholic Jew, right. which basically said that ethnic identity was based on uh, religion in America. So in other words, after three generations over here, uh, you lost contact. You First of all, you don't speak the language anymore. Now, again, the Mexicans are different because they're right next door and they got a lot of them here. Okay. But for the most part, after three generations, you don't speak the language anymore. Okay. But you do retain the religion and religion becomes the source of your ethnic identity. So there are three ethnic groups based on three religions, very similar to Yugoslavia. Okay. So we have precedents like for, uh, for this. Okay. The other thing that happened in 54 was the, uh, the, the school desegregation decision, Brown versus school board. And that meant uh, that established race as a significant category in the law. And so you have two competing paradigms at this point. I, uh, uh, the South, obviously, there, uh, if we're talking historically, black and white were significant in the South. But what happened here at this moment in history is that that, that paradigm got imposed on the entire United States, even where it didn't apply. And I'm talking about Chicago. Where right. It did, not, it did not apply in Chicago. So, well, it could correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't didn't you write about or I know someone has. I know about the history of Chicago to a certain degree. I know that oddly enough, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was attempting to destroy uh, ethnic neighborhoods of like, for example, like Lithuanian, Irish, etc. He wanted to uh, put black Americans in these homogenous ethnically European neighborhoods, despite the fact that these were people who spoke their own language, had their own churches, and just wanted to be left alone by everyone else in the United States. Right, right. That was every, big cities like Chicago in the north and the east were basically a mosaic of ethnic colonies from Europe. And so the so Martin Luther King shows up, and suddenly he goes into Marquette Park, and he's imposing this southern paradigm on Chicago where it didn't apply. Yeah, there were no there were no segregated water fountains in Chicago. You did not have to sit at the back of the bus in Chicago if you were black. Uh, if you in the 1920s, if you were a German and you moved into a Czech neighborhood, there would be a riot and people would throw rocks through your windows because you they, they, you weren't welcome there. Right. These were, there was an ethnic solidarity in these neighborhoods. Now, this changed during World War II. The book that uh, was the uh, blueprint for this was called The American Dilemma. The man who on the title is uh, Gunnar Myrdal. Uh, I've written in my book, Slaughter City, I explain why he could not have written that book. He was a Swedish socialist. He was brought in to be the front man for this. It was written by the psychological warfare establishment of the United States, uh, groups like the Office for War Information. And one of the crucial figures was Louis Wirth, uh, who was wrote eight chapters of the book. Uh, and he was uh, in the OWI, Office of War Information. He was a sociologist from the University of Chicago. And uh, he was sent to uh, Detroit where there was a race riot, 42, because in 42, uh, after the United States entered the war, they had a labor shortage and they brought 250,000 black sharecroppers up to Chicago. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, to Detroit to work in the armaments industry. And there was no place for them to live. And there was a housing shortage and there was all sorts of tension because you can't bring that number of group uh, of immigrants into a society without 
creating tension. It's of obvious. Course. Yeah, regardless of the race. I mean, you can bring in uh, Anglo-Saxons from the north to the south, and that's going to create this carpetbagging problem that we see. Like right. mass migration is going to cause chaos regardless. I agree. That's right. And so Louis Worth was sent there to investigate it. He wrote a report, and in the report, he said basically that there are certain people in this country who cannot be trusted because of their origin. Okay, so Germans, okay, we knew that. Okay, Italians, okay, we knew that. But then he gets to the Irish. Well, why can't they be trusted? Uh, we're not at war with Ireland. And then the Italians. And then the Poles. Well, wait a minute, didn't, didn't the Germans invade Poland? Well, what's the common denominator here? It's Catholic. Worth hated Catholics. And if you, if you can't, if you don't bring this in, you are going to fall into the trap of identity theft which is a significant issue in our day right now, identity theft. Uh, it happened last summer. The whole battle over the statue of St. Louis in St. Louis was a battle over identity theft. Yeah. Because the, the basically the, the, uh, the guy who orchestrated, he's a kind of shill, his name is uh, Umar Lee. He, he, he began life as a white boy. Okay, and then he became black when he went to high school because he started talking black, and he was a member of a black gang, so he's black now. So it was and like Sean King before Sean King, almost. Yeah, and then he becomes a Muslim, and so now he's a shill for other. He's a proxy warrior, basically for the Jews, because the Jews are the only people who are upset about St. Louis. Blacks don't know even know who he was. He didn't own slaves. He lived in France in the 13th century. What's that got was to do with blacks? I want to make sure I understand this correctly. Was St. Louis the king that ordered the uh, debate that you wrote about in Jewish revolutionary spirit regarding the Pope and I think the top rabbi whenever they discovered what the, the existence of the Talmud? Right, right. Uh, rabbi uh, St. Raymond of Peñaforte, who was the head of the Dominicans at that point, introduced uh, a, a rabbi who had converted to Catholicism to Pope Gregory the Ninth. And uh, uh, Don, Nicholas Donan was his name. And he said to the Pope, do you know what's in the Talmud? And the Pope said, what's the Talmud? He didn't even know there was a Talmud. Right. <laughs> and so at this point, um, Gregory talks about the blasphemies in the Talmud. The Pope is shocked. He turns to Raymond of Peñaforte and he says, I, if this is true, I want you to put that book on trial. And the person that Raymond of Peñaforte turned to was Leo, uh, uh, Pope Louis, uh, I'm Pope, St. Louis the Ninth, King Louis the Ninth of France who then did put the Talmud on uh, trial. And uh, lo and behold, it's true. There's all this blasphemy in it. So they burned the Talmud. The, the state of France burned the Talmud, and the Jews never forgot. And they, they never forget. They never forgive. They never forget. And this was led all the way to this grudge now in St. Louis. But you can't do it on those terms. It's not going to fly on those terms. So what did Umar Lee do? He has to say, they're white supremacists. Yeah, they were white supremacists before white even existed as a concept, which is funny. But, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but so I believe prior, so like the discovery of the Talmud in Europe at this time, it was kind of like how the Catholic Church finally realized that Judaism was a rejection of Christ. Like prior to that, the, it really wasn't set in stone in terms of like actual writings in Judaism. Um, highlighting that these people were officially rejecting Christ. And prior to that, they didn't really know that. Am I mistaken in this definition or is that correct? No, well, the rejection of Christ was obvious at the time of the crucifixion. What, what the church didn't know is that they had created this whole ideology right. of, uh, of uh, a, a rejection, an ideological rejection of Logos. 
not just killing Christ, but they're going to make a, a, a whole policy out of this thing. And that was the Talmud. The Talmud was, is newer than uh, Christianity. Judaism is newer than Christianity. It's not older than Christianity. It's hundreds of years newer than Christianity. And it's based on rejection of Logos. So it's a big, unwieldy book. Um, and uh, it, it is the purpose of this book is to keep Jews on the reservation, keep them from converting to Christ, because it's a constant danger. Because if, you're, if your whole ideology is based on the rejection of Logos, and I'm saying Judaism is an ideology that is based on the rejection of Logos, you're going to have a, a lot of unhappy people because you're contradicting their nature. I just dealt with it. It's a letter to the editor in Culture Wars magazine of a lady who got into this uh, Kab, uh, uh, Zohar cult, uh, Kabbalah, you know, the red, uh, the red uh, bracelet, string bracelet. She was one very unhappy lady because it was a cult. It was irrational. It contradicted her nature. And now she's freed from it. Yeah, I mean, I played some type of role in this simply by explaining what Logos is and how it's part of our nature. So there's always going to be this unhappiness uh, among the Jewish people. And the way they deal with this as happiness is by projecting it onto us, the non-Jews, and trying to change our culture and trying to disrupt our culture. That is the gist of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Precisely. Great answer. And now that we have uh, covered this ground in terms of like this discovery of the Talmud, which was done, I believe, by a Jewish convert, as you said before, to Catholicism, I want to talk about chapter four of your book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Specifically, I believe it's titled False Conversion and the Inquisition. Now, I actually kind of regret recently buying your book because I bought it right before your second edition came oh, out. Buy, it, still... buy the second edition. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to. Too. I'll have to at some point. But, <laughs> 600 um... pages of new material. Go, oh, go really? Ahead. I didn't know yeah. that. Okay. So what I wanted you to do for my audience is, could you kind of explain, you know, assuming a lot of my listeners aren't super well versed in Hispanic history, could you explain why this topic of false conversion became a huge deal in uh, Spain after the expulsion of the Moors and like how the Inquisition actually dealt with these people in terms of like what actually happened versus what the myth on the media and in academia typically tells people about the Inquisition. Yeah, well, the, so back to that story of Nicholas Donan. Okay, the, the Pope then turned to Raymond of Peñaforte after telling him to put the book on trial. And he says, I want you to work for the conversion of this group of people. And so he, uh, Nicholas, uh, our, our Raymond of Peñaforte turned to Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest thinkers in the Catholic Church. And Thomas Aquinas wrote the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is basically to convert Jews and Moors. Uh, Raimondo uh, Martini wrote the book uh, Puccio Fidea Adversus Judios et Moros, the dagger of face aimed at Jews and Moors. This campaign was so successful that by the end of, let's say, the uh, 14th, beginning of the 15th century, there were no Jews left in Western Europe. They had all either converted or they had gone to Poland. So, and there was discussions in Rome about, well, what are we going to do with all these synagogues? There are no Jews anymore. Do we turn them into churches? Or oh, this type of discussion. Now, when you have a mass conversion like this, you can have problems. And one of the places where they had the problem was one of the places that had a lot of Jews outside of Poland, and that was Spain. Right. And so, 
at a certain point, you had to deal with a crucial issue. And the crucial issue was basically that the rabbi would tell the Jew, you can lie. So you can get baptized and like as long as you cross your fingers behind your back. I'm sure they didn't say that, but I mean, that's the type of thing we're talking about here. Something along those lines. Yeah. You could, you could, you could deliberately deceive people and, and uh, accept baptism uh, without any intention of becoming a Christian. And these people came to be known as uh, conversos, false conversion. And the trouble was that they continued acting like Jews after their conversion, which meant usury usually. And that is always disruptive. And they they were they were cornering the market in grain, and they they, they were just doing they they, they didn't change. Uh, they were acting like Jews, and they always caused problems. And so, the king of Spain at this point, I mean, so uh, the other thing that's going on is basically the Span the Spain is uh, engaged in the Reconquista, where they're driving the Moors out of Spain, driving them across the, the Mediterranean back into Africa, and the Jews are collaborating with the Moors. So they're they're doing there's they haven't converted. So the question is, what do we do? Well, I know we'll get the Inquisition here. We'll bring the Inquisition in. The Dominicans, they're smart guys, and they will be able to tell whether you're sincere. These people are sincere or not. So they put them on trial. Now, one of the myths is uh, that the Inquisition burned Jews at the stake. There's not one Jew that ever got burned at the stake. Okay, this was for heretics. In other words, the Spanish crown took the baptismal promise very seriously. If you accepted baptism, then you were a Christian and you were going to be held accountable for all of the laws of Christianity, including the laws banning heresy. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so, they yeah. were, so at this point, they, they were warned, okay, if they found you, they were guilty of Judaizing, you were guilty of uh, this type of behavior, we'll give you a warning. If you persist in it, we're going to burn you at the stake. And so it was only Catholics who got burned at the stake. It wasn't any Jews. Because the water of baptism uh, changes you from a Jew to a Catholic. It's an indelible mark. It didn't change your DNA. It changed your soul change the orientation of your soul. And so they held them accountable. And then, so at this point, it still doesn't work. So at this point, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella throw up their hands and they say, we're kicking them out. It's not the first time Jews got kicked out of a country and they did get kicked out. And the problem here is now that you spread the problem and you spread it to two places in particular. You spread it to the Spanish Netherlands, which is now Holland, uh, and Belgium, northern part of Belgium, and it spread to Turkey. And both of these places, it had real serious consequences. The, in the first instance, it's be the beginning of capitalism as we know it, uh, because capitalism is state-sponsored usury, which is what I talk about in my book, Baron Metal. I have that book as well. Wonderful, wonderful read. If you want anyone here is listening and they want to know the true history of capitalism from the beginning up till I believe the uh, Occupy Wall Street situation that occurred. Yes. And the other group went to, uh, as I said, went to Turkey and they were known as Donme. And Donme is the Turkish word for converso. Donme means to turn. So if you go to Germany where you get a Turkish restaurant, it's called a donor. And it's basically a, a leg of lamb turning on a spit. So these were the people. These, these people had crucial, crucial influence on the Ottoman Empire all the way up 
to the 20th century. And the one of the new chapters in the Jewish second edition of the Jewish revolutionary spirit is the role that uh, the Jewish revolutions, Jewish revolutionaries, the Donma played in the Armenian genocide. It's a long topic. We can't too complicated to get into this right now, but to get back. And also you would have to tell the story of Shabbatai Zivi, who was a Jew, a Donma from uh, uh, Smyrna. He was the Messiah. Every synagogue in Europe accepted this man as the Messiah. He went to uh, Istanbul. He was going to take the, the turban off the caliph's head. The caliph t- turned the tables on him, put him up in front of a, a, his archers and said, okay, if you're the Messiah, we're going to fire arrows at you and they won't hurt you. And he said, well, well wait a minute. I, uh, and so the, the Jewish Messiah became a Muslim at that point. And this was a catastrophe that was the greatest catastrophe in Jewish history since the destruction of the temple. Every Jewish historiographer, they don't like to talk about it, but it's absolutely the case. But to get more to our point is the Spanish Netherlands now has this large Jewish population that is very close to England. Yes. And at this point, you have this collaboration between the Jews in Amsterdam and the the, the crypto Jews, uh, the called Puritans, uh, in England. These are Jews, Judaizers. They were Christians who uh, wanted to be Jews because they wanted they wanted that carnal religion, and that sets up the battle over who's going to control the world at this point. Uh, and the first battle over who was going to control the world was between England and Spain, and the crucial battleground was the New World. Who was going to control that? Because the, the, the Dutch uh, were the first people who rose because of Jewish usury, uh, and the English quickly uh, took care of the of the Dutch. They conquered them without much of a fight, and at that point, it was the battle was between England and Spain over who's going to control the riches of the New World, and of course, Spain was there first. And Spain uh, had access to all of the gold and silver in Central and South America. And that was just too, too rich a prize to resist. And so you have people like, you have the rise of piracy. Yes. Uh, and the pir- pirates of the Caribbean were still making movies about it uh, uh, because it was such a uh, an interesting period of history where basically the English would commission privateers, private people, give them letters of mark and saying, you can plunder Spanish shipping because Spanish ships were loaded with gold, gold and silver coming back from the new world. And this is one, this, just to give you one instance, one pirate, he was uh, Sir Francis Drake. If you're a pirate, if, if, if you're a theft, if you steal a spoon in England, they hang you. If you steal uh, an entire country, they make you a knight. Uh, and this is what... <laughs> This is what they did to Sir Francis Drake. Uh, one, I'm just giving you one ship brought back to England after his plundering mission in the Caribbean abolished the debt. I mean, this is this is lucrative. This is really uh, uh, an easy way to make money. It just eliminated the sovereign debt. So this is why the English got involved in piracy. And also how this battle went back and forth between Spain and England, back and forth, back and forth. 
it up to, up to I mean I'm saying we could take this up to Samuel Huntington again right yeah because basically now you have <clears throat> Hispanic uh, uh, the Hispanic Empire in its own reconquista now the reconquista of California and Texas simply by migration right and how are we going to deal with this how are the oligarchs the, the, now this is the wasp elite he's like the last gasp of the wasp elite how are we going to deal with this? And uh, the answer, I think, is uh, moral corruption. I think that's the answer. That's yeah, what I go ahead. I was going to say this seems like a typical thing in Anglo-Saxon societies where these uh, elites are the Anglo elites are always plundering everyone else while they accuse you of plundering them. I just find it to be funny. But I'd actually like to, since we're in this general time period, and I think this would be good for my audience as well. Could you kind of for my audience? Uh, summarize, um, I guess. Uh, so in December 1511, as you're kind of sure, I believe the Dominican friar Antonio de Montesinos, he rebuked the Spanish authorities governing Hispaniola originally because he believed that the American natives were being uh, mistreated. He was telling him, you know, you guys are living in mortal sin. You guys are being cruel and tyrannical against these Indians, I believe, on these uh, Caribbean islands. And then the uh, law of Burgos and the Valladolid uh, was created as a response. Could you explain sort of how this situation, like like what occurred here in terms of like um, the internal debate that happened between these uh, people in Spain and the Catholic Church and kind of deciding like, you know, we need to stop mistreating the Indians and we need to fully incorporate them into the Spanish Empire under Catholicism? Yeah, well, the fundamental difference was that the, the Pope issued a statement saying that these are human beings, okay, and they have immortal souls, and they are supposed to be treated like that, and this is what the Franciscans did. Now, I was in Argentina, and they have a monument to Hispanic culture, and it's a complicated thing, but, I mean, uh, the two main figures are the Franciscan and the Conquistador. Yeah. And that's Hispanic culture. And it, it had to be that way uh, because of the situation in the New World. I'm talking specifically about the situation in Mexico, which was ruled by uh, a ferocious uh, ethnic group called the Aztecs, uh, which had basically subjugated all of the other tribes. And so when Cortez showed up there, it was uh, you'll never have a story like this again because where one high civilization meets another high civilization and they've never had any contact with each other before and so at, at a certain point they're they'd never seen a horse before and they wondered if it was like something like uh you know that mythological creature the like center yeah yeah, yeah is, are they connected i've never seen this type of thing before um well the indian they, uh, nobility i believe these people were even having debates on are these people human too, or the Spaniards human. Like they had to debate right. over this stuff. And it's, it's obvious. It's obvious because if you live in some type of ethnic isolation, which most people did at that point, your language is going to correspond, uh, correspond to this. So you're, what is the word for human being? Well, it's, it's Aztec or yeah, whatever Aztecs, tribe you are. The Aztecs considered non-Aztecs to not be human. In right. Terms of tribes. This, yeah. this is the normal state of affairs of ethnic innocence. Uh, it, 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 it's always the case. The, 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 the group that lives on the other side of the river are the, the people that we call them uh, Apache or something like that. But that's the Comanche word for people who eat rattlesnake dung and are subhuman or something like that. It's just the way it is. Okay. And so, Cortez comes into this situation and the only way uh, now this, this is uh, not neutral. It's an evil empire. 
they uh, they uh, in 14, I think it was 1492, or right around the time that Columbus arrived at the other end of the Caribbean, they marched uh, thousands of people up the pyramid in Mexico and cut their hearts out. So it's based on human sacrifice. Something that's evil is not going to go away. It's not going to go quietly. And so you needed the conquistador to come in and basically break the hold that this ethnic group had over all the others. Now, Cortez uh, couldn't have done it with Spaniards. I mean, they, 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 they were welcomed. Montezuma welcomed them into Mexico City. And then the whole situation went bad when the Aztecs thought that Montezuma was collaborating with Cortez. And they murdered Montezuma. And suddenly the Aztecs had no protection at this point. And they tried to get out of town and they loaded themselves with all the gold they could carry. And they're marching across the causeway because Mexico's in the middle of a city is middle of a lake at that point. Right. And they, the Aztecs start beating their big drum and they take up the bridges on the causeway and the Spaniards are jumping in the water and going right to the bottom until finally you have to walk across dead bodies loaded with gold to get out. And Bernardo Diaz said there's only, there were 120 guys and there wasn't one that didn't have four wounds. And at this point, Cortez says, not only are we not going to retreat and go back to Spain, we're going to turn around and we're going to conquer that city. Now, this was an incredibly heroic move on this guy's part. He couldn't have done it alone. He had other ethnic groups, uh, Mexican ethnic groups working with him. And they did. They conquered it. Well, you're not going to break that evil hold without military force. It's just the way it is. It's not the end of the story, though. I mean, I was in I was in Guadalajara, and I'm in a church, and I'm looking, and I'm I'm seeing the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I mean, it's not as if I'd seen it for the first time. I've seen it many times before, and suddenly I realized this was like a supernatural creation of a country. The Mexican people were created by Our Lady of Guadalupe. Because it was the, it's the, the cosmic race. It's the mixture of European and indigenous Indians that was their, their destiny. And it wouldn't have happened without a miracle because obviously they, they had been conquered, but nobody was converting. The people were simply not converting. For some reason, it's just, I mean, it's not easy to convert, especially something so alien as this, but it happened there. It happened. And because of, um, because of that divine intervention, so you can't exclude uh, supernature or the supernatural realm from Mexico because it created Mexico, and that tilma is still there. And you know they, they, the Masons may try and blow it up, but it's still there. So what you had was basically this great step forward. Now there were problems. There were problems with the encomienda system. It was slavery, okay. Uh, but the Jesuits had come up in Paraguay had come up with an alternative to this the Portuguese and the Spanish Jesuits. So Jones, real quickly, could you, for the audience, sort of explain, like, um, just briefly, like how the encomienda system sort of operated, like how long people would be sent like, work at these places and, like, what the general, uh, I guess, uh, critique of them from the Catholic Church was? I just want to make that clear for the audience. They enslaved, there was slavery. It was a form of slavery, and it was, uh, you just never got out of slavery. It was that simple. It's a very simple system. It's the kind of default system for human labor in human history. It's slavery. Uh, you just use people as property and uh, it ends up uh, basically impoverishing everyone. 
Right, but I was aware that the crown uh, sort of abolished the encumenda system. Am I, am I correct? Uh, it's, it, the point is that the crown is thousands of miles away and it can't do anything. It has no power. It can't uh, deal with a system that is this deeply entrenched. That's the problem here. And so the, 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 the alternative to this was what the Jesuits created in Paraguay, the Jesuit reductions. And please go into that. I would like to uh, hear kind of how this started up because most of my audience, I don't think, understands. I don't either. Paraguay very much. It's not something that is uh, talked about. Usually it's Mexican and Peruvian history that tends to be right. uh, what most people center on. This, it's part of the heroic effort that the Jesuits made in spreading the gospel throughout the world. And so, you, you, again, we're talking about an unprecedented situation where these guys who grow up in Spain or Portugal show up in a continent where no one has ever been there before. No, no person from Europe has ever been there before. You walk into the jungle. You, it, there's a movie called The Mission, if you want to see the, the, the a movie version of what I'm talking about. Or if, if you're talking about the North American version, you could re watch a movie called Black Robe because they did the same thing in North America, in Quebec, that they did down in Paraguay. Okay. So basically, in, in Quebec, you've got people who are, um, you know, they are hunter-gatherers and they live off the moose. Uh, and the moose is difficult to kill. And the only way you can kill it is when the snow is uh, up, up to the waist of the moose. And you have snowshoes. They have snowshoes and spears. And so they run off the snow and they stab the moose to death. And then they sit there and eat the whole damn moose at one sitting in their teepees. And so the Jesuit, in order to learn the language, he has to go on the moose hunt. And so they have the diaries. They have to write their diaries every year. These became bestsellers in France because of their description of, the, of this whole new world. And there's a Jesuit in a teepee. It's 40 below zero outside the teepee. It's 100 degrees in the teepee because the fire is roasting the moose. And there's the Jesuit with his face pressed to that little gap between the tent and the ground trying to get some fresh air, trying to breathe. He said these people, this is what he said, they spend their they spend their lives in smoke and eternity in flames. And that's why he was there to baptize them. Same thing happened in Paraguay. Obviously, Paraguay is not frigid climate like that, but the same thing happened. They go into these people and the Jesuits then sit down and they learn Guarani. And not only that, they 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 write a Guarani dictionary and they write a Guarani grammar. And that is the reason to this day that Guarani is one of the official languages of Paraguay. It was because of the Jesuits and because of that heroic effort. So not only did they learn Guarani, uh, they started dealing with the people in a, a way that is truly enlightened. So the Guarani have this, um, basically, whenever the ruling council gets together, they, get, they have to get drunk before they make a decision. It's not a good basis for making decisions. I know it comes as a shock to people. But <laughs> it's not a good basis. So they introduce um, yerba mate. They find this holly-like plant. They create an entire new beverage. And the Indians do not have to get drunk on, on chicha or whatever they, they called it. This is it, Within three generations, they had people making musical instruments. And at that point, we have the evil again of history, the evil force of history. And at this point, it's known as Freemasonry, which is basically an English construct. It's English uh, covert warfare 
against Catholic powers. I was going to say, I was actually going to jump into this. I'm glad that you uh, brought up Freemasonry. For the audience, could you kind of go into like when Freemasonry sort of started up in Europe, what the, uh, I guess, purpose was in terms of what they stated it was and like how it eventually became um, a system in which like, you know, people who are atheistic or Protestant or Jewish, um, I mean, these are all very similar things to sort of like combine forces to kind of take over, I guess, um, modern civilization as like the shadow elite. Yeah, well, in the Middle Ages, it was what its name indicated. They were uh, guilds who had were skilled tradesmen who were masons, who basically knew how to build cathedrals and so on and so forth. And they would travel around and they would have secret markings because you didn't want to share this information because your value is because you have know how to do it and you don't want everybody to know how to do it. So there were secret societies uh, that eventually got taken over by the Whig oligarchs uh, in the beginning of the 18th century when they centralized the Grand Lodge in, in London. At this point, it became psychological warfare. And at this point, it was used against the Catholic monarchs uh, Spain, Portugal, and France. Uh, so you had a, an unprecedented situation where you have a, a French, uh, the Duc de Choiseul was a Frenchman, a French aristocrat. He's obviously Catholic, right? Uh, and he's trying to uh, go down to the Pope, uh, meets with the Pope and says, you've got to suppress the Jesuits. Well, the Pope's thinking, well, he's dealing with a Catholic. He's not dealing with a Catholic. He's dealing with a Freemason. Right. So the 18th century is the century of secret societies. The church, once again, is caught unaware of what's really going on. And so they do suppress the Jesuits. This had horrendous consequences across the world. In France, it led to the French Revolution. In Paraguay, it led to the destruction of an economic system that could have been this, the alternative to both slavery and uh, what name, came to be known as capitalism. It was strangled in its cradle. I don't know why. Why does God allow this type of stuff to happen? I don't know. But he did. And that experiment just died, strangled in his cradle. Uh, the same thing, something similar happened in uh, Quebec. The French allied with one group of Indians, the Hurons. The English allied with the other. The French would only allow their best people to come to the colony. The English uh, would send us criminals. And so you had criminal behavior spreading throughout the English colonies. Uh, Jews in charge of the trading posts at places like Fort Orange, which is now Albany. The, the Jews want to make a quick buck. And so they sell them whiskey and guns. And because they have guns, they uh, decimate the Hurons and the French uh, presence is basically destroyed in the New World, for, uh, culminating the conquest of Quebec by Wolfe on the last day of the year when the, you could have mounted an attack. So this, the, the difference is uh, when I, I cover this in Barren Metal, when the English showed up in Newfoundland, uh, uh, Nova Scotia, they say, well, we're all going to speak English now. We're all Englishmen, and uh, we, will, we would like to convert you to Christianity. Well, the Mi'kmaq Indians there say, well, wait a minute. We're already Christians. We're Catholics. Uh, the French intermarried with the Mi'kmaq. They spoke Mi'kmaq. Uh, the English refused to speak Mi'kmaq. They would only speak French. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't even speak French. They, they only spoke English. And they tried to convert them. The Presbyterians tried to convert them because Presbyterianism was basically capitalism with a religious uh, flavor to it. <laughs> and and when the Indians when the Indians refused, 
they started a campaign of scalping them. And when that didn't work, they deported them to Louisiana where they became known as Cajuns. So this is the, the difference between the Hispanic culture, Hispanic Catholic culture, and uh, uh, the English uh, Protestant uh, racial culture. So they, 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 this, to this day, okay, if you go to uh, the Straits of Mackinac, which is between the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula of Michigan, yeah. there's a fort there, and it's a state, uh, state park, and you go into the building, and there is a, a uh, video explaining the history of the Straits of Mackinac, and Fort Mac Mac Michie Millie Mackinac is the name of it. And it starts off with the French uh, voyageur, the guy who paddled the canoes to pick up the fur, trade, fur trade and an Indian maid, and they get married in front of a Catholic priest. Next thing we know, the English take over. The English bring in a Jew to run the trading post. This is, this is not me, the anti-Semite, saying this. This is the state of Michigan saying this. Okay, the Jew then begins to cheat the Indians. The Indians get tired of being cheated, so one day they they throw one of their balls over the stockade. Can we come in and get our ball? The guy opens the gate and they slaughter everyone. And then they declare, we are no longer loyal subjects of the King of England. We're going back to the King of France. This was the dichotomy that existed in the new world. The ethnic dichotomy, the religious dichotomy, uh, and uh, basically the English won. In, in, in a short way, the English pretty much defeated first the Spanish, in the New World, and then the, the French. Uh, the French presence has all but evaporated. You can't say that about the Spanish. All of South America and the Hispanic, uh, the uh, Central America is part of Hispanic culture. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they stopped trying. And then the next attack was the Freemasons in the New World, uh, who took over Mexico and basically ruined Mexico uh, to the point where it is what it is today. The same thing happened in places like Argentina. Argentina was one of the most, I think, one of the most prosperous countries in the world until the English uh, reneged on their debts and the whole thing, all the way up to the Jewish predator, uh, Paul Singer, who basically bought up Argentine debt at 10 cents on the dollar and then got to uh, charge full face value, even though the deal had already been through. So you, uh, you, this is the, 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 the two sides of history that I tried to describe in both the Jewish revolutionary spirit and in barren metal. Yeah, that's, that was a very good explanation. I'm just curious, uh, Dr. Jones, are there any uh, Anglo-Saxon, either ones that grew up in the British Isles or in America, like authors or historians that were sort of like Philo-Spanish or like Philo-Catholic Church or were Catholic themselves and who have been criticizing sort of like the Anglo project that has been occurring in the New World? Like, are there any authors you would point us to? That we should read, or yeah, the late the late Warren Carroll was a, a, a he was a, a sympathetic to the Spanish point of view. Uh, more, I think, it's more important uh, are the people who the Protestants who couldn't help but be impressed. And Francis Parkman was one of them. He wrote the Jesuits in North America, which is a, a good book. I mean, this is the type of book that uh, used to be read in the public school system. Every every library. The, you know, founded by Carnegie, I'm sure had a, a copy of the Jesuits of North, in North America. It was uh, just a classic of American history. And this was a man who was not sympathetic at all to the Catholic Church, but simply could not but be impressed by what the Jesuits did. He just, you know, he said, well, it was just 
Thank God that they lost because otherwise we'd have no freedom now. This is the way he's talking <laughs> in the middle of the 19th century. Thank God they lost. But you have to say they were great people when, when he's talking about the Jesuits. Uh, that's the type of testimony that was part of American culture. Nathaniel Hawthorne, I did my dissertation on Nathaniel Hawthorne. His admiration for Rome and Catholic culture in Rome was great. Uh, you can read the Marble Fawn, and also you find out his ambivalence. Uh, he could never bring himself to become a Catholic. I don't know why, uh, but his daughter became a Catholic, and she founded an order of, of uh, Dominicans. All this has been suppressed by the, the, the wretched educational system that we have that has basically just gone over to complete racism, critical race theory, all this type of stuff, which is simply, you know, a, not only a suppression of history, it's also just a form of control. Wonderful answer, Jones. And I wanted to kind of follow up with this question um, because this is something I've actually been noticing a lot, that a lot of American Catholics within the past few years, ones that are more, I guess, white American Catholics or who call themselves white, they're starting to come around in a lot of ways when I explain to them the history of like the Catholic Church in Spain and how that empire operated in like contrast to the Anglo Empire up north. And my question for you is, why do you think there's been so many Catholic paleocon authors like, for example, Patrick Buchanan, who made an entire living sort of whining about what was ostensibly for the most part? Catholic immigration to United States from places like Mexico and Central America. Like, why do you think so many of these, um, I guess like Catholic American, why are so many, were so many of these Catholic American elites and intellectuals so anti uh, immigration from places that had more devout Catholics than um, the Anglo stock of America that founded it? That's a good question. Uh, I think if you're talking about Pat Buchanan, you're talking about a man who was in the white house. If you're talking about, I mean, Pat sends, sends me his books, you know, he writes nice inscriptions on the books. I, I enjoy reading his books. But he identified, I think there's a generational gap between us. Uh, he's, he's not 20 years older than me, but there's, there's a kind of generational gap. And it has to do with identifying as an American or with America. Right. I, I don't think Pat ever got over being in the White House. Uh, and I think he just talks. Those are the categories that formed his mind. And I, I, I know you're surprised to hear this, but I've never been invited to the White House for some reason. <laughs> I've, I, I have never, I, I have, I never, I never had that identification with America. I, I always, I always felt that my, my gaze was to the east, was back to Europe. I, I, I was, I lived in Germany for three years before I ever went west of the Susquehanna River. The Susquehanna River is runs through Harrisburg. It's in eastern Pennsylvania. I had never been west of that until I actually, until I got the job in South Bend, my orientation was always kind of European. I never, uh, and I think Pat identified with uh, America. And how do you identify with being, uh, with America? Well, you talk about being white. And uh, I, I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it. I, I grew up in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, even at that time, was ethnic neighborhoods. I was, I was born, I was raised in an ethnic neighborhood, an Irish neighborhood, until I was six. And then the black people crossed Lehigh Avenue, and then my family left. You know, And they migrated to what was probably, it, it had just been annexed, so it was technically part of the city, but it was really a kind of suburb. 
and it was it was white. This was the whole point of the social engineering that took place after World War II. If you were in Chicago, if you lived in Chicago in Marquette Park, you were a Lithuanian. Mm-hmm. If you left the Marquette Park and moved to the suburbs, you became white. That's how you became white. And and it was complicated or aggravated by the fact that um, intermarriage uh, more was more likely to take place in the suburbs than it was in an, in an ethnic neighborhood because you met all kinds of different people. So when I was growing up, you had, you know, there were Germans, there were Polacks, there were uh, Irish, and there were Italians. That was pretty much it. There were some people from Hungary, some people from various places, but that was pretty much it. And I always, I just, it just never occurred to me that there, there, these, these differences were, were significant at that point because I thought we're all Americans. But the older I got, the more I began to realize that that was the identity that we had. And it became a generic identity within the third generation. Actually, it became a generic identity within, within the second generation. But it didn't, so even if, if you're, if you moved out of the ethnic neighborhood, you still ended up marrying Catholics. So that was my, my Irish grandfather had six children uh, and all of them married Catholics, but only one of them married another Irishman. So that, that convinced me that the triple, uh, meth, uh, triple melting pot was the real uh, description of ethnicity and that race had been superimposed over it as a form of social engineering. And nothing that I've learned since that time has convinced me that that's wrong. That's why I wrote The Slaughter of Cities. It's basically to show that there was a plan, and the plan was to turn Catholics into white people. Yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. And I just want to say, uh, Dr. Jones, you're one of my favorite biracial YouTubers. I think, um, you know, when you when I first started listening to you in 2016, I... I had a lot more race. I had more of a racialist mindset and I would just, you know, get mad at you. But, you know, I really start to sat down. I would read all of your stuff and I had to come to the conclusion that you were a man that was uh, much, very much ahead of your time. And, you know, to me, it seems now like, especially after learning about uh, FDR and the formation of like the GI Bill, which encouraged these ethnic Europeans to flee to the suburbs. To me, it almost feels like white identity is like a crucial part of that is fleeing black Americans and running to the suburbs and always running away and, and not trying abandoning your ethnic roots and not trying to assert ethnic dominance in these cities where all the cultural power is formed. And, um, and you were always someone that articulated this very well. And I want to ask you this as well, since um, I know you've talked about this and you brought it up briefly in this interview, you said that you've uh, taught in Germany, I believe it was after world war two. So you're fluent in German, you were teaching there. I'm assuming it was West Germany, but I wanted to ask, so sort of how was the denazification process like in Germany when you were teaching there? And what sort of anti-Catholic rhetoric in Germany uh, were you seeing when you were um, there trying to uh, provide an education for Germans there? There was no anti-Catholic rhetoric. I lived in a completely Catholic area. I was the lower Rhine. It was right on the Rhine. Okay. Uh, There was... uh, the thing in retrospect, the biggest thing happening then was the sexual corruption of the German people. It was, uh, it, I, 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 this is a book, uh, a part, a, a chapter that I wrote in uh, Logos Rising. It's called Werner Heisenberg and Jewish Science. Well, basically, the social engineering 
that uh, took place in the United States of America was mild compared to the social engineering that was forced on Germany because Germany was a conquered nation. And one of the main techniques of social engineering was the corruption of morals. And that meant the promotion of pornography and sex education and films. It was basically, this was the mid seventies. The the Hollywood production code had been broken in America. I arrived there in 73. Uh, That was the year of deep throat. I mean, hardcore pornography on uh, big uh, first run movies. Yeah. Everything that happened in the United States was worse in Germany. Because I mean, but wouldn't, there, Joan, there was wouldn't, no. wouldn't you argue that this was inherently anti-Catholic, though? Like, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, I'm sure many of these people who are promoting this stuff in Germany had very bad things to say about the Catholic Church there. Am I wrong? The people who were responsible were Jews, largely Jews from New York City. There was a Jewish psychiatrist from New York City. Uh, and if you wanted to get a license to publish a book uh, or a TV, uh, a TV series or a magazine or uh, anything, you had to go to him and kind of grovel and say how bad Germans were and how they were all guilty for the, the Holocaust and so on and so forth. Right. So you had uh, the, 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 the corruption there. That was a- anti-Catholic. But at this point, uh, f- uh, from the point of view of the Jews in the United States, uh, it wasn't Germany was the big issue. They hated Germans. Uh, and Catholic or Protestant, they probably hated them both uh, equally. I don't think they saw a big distinction. It wasn't. It wasn't geared toward Catholics. It wasn't. It was. It was geared toward Germans. There was uh, it, it, the the films that came out were all geared. To, I don't think there's any Catholic anti-Catholic element in them at all, uh, because if there were, it would have ruined it. It would have ruined it because the main victim you want to have here is the the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church at this point, especially in West Germany, West Germany was primarily Catholic. Protestantism and Eastern German are phenomenal. And that was all in the the, uh, DDR, the Deutsche Demokratische Republik at that time. So it was a a heavily Catholic area and and, uh, they had to target the Catholic Church as the defender of um, social morality. Uh, uh, but they did it in a way that was not overt. I think they learned from Bismarck. You don't deal with this uh, as uh, aggressively as what they would call a Catholican fresser, uh, someone who eats Catholics. That's not going to work. It was subtle. And I think the main way they did it was through science. So it has relevance to the COVID virus. Uh, because the man who was responsible for this was Alfred Kinsey. Uh, and uh, Kin- the Kinsey report was just big news for basically the entire 50s. And during this period of time, the word report became a German word. Because before that, the German word is Bericht. It has nothing to do with report. But after the Kinsey report, you'd have movies like uh, der Schulmädchen report, the schoolgirl report, or the the Hausfrauen report, or all, all these report things, because it gave this veneer of pseudo scientific, uh, a pseudo scientific aura to basically softcore pornography. That that's what was going on. It had a devastating effect on my the generation that I was teaching, the kids that I was teaching, including you know friends I had in that generation. I was in a band with people at that point, and I could see that it was having a bad effect. They've never recovered. 
they've never recovered. So what happened here is you incur guilt because you break the sixth commandment. And then the Jew is there to say, uh, I know the source of your guilt. It's because of the Holocaust. And so the whole, the more you uh, got involved in sexual liberation, the more power the Holocaust had over your mind to this day where basically they control Germany. They rule Germany with an iron rod. It's the worst country in the world in that regard. Yeah, I, I was kind of asking you about this in general because I believe when I was reading um, particularly about uh, – your sort of like study on how the Frankfurt School operated and what their objectives were in terms of like creating critical theory and, and write-ups such as like the authoritarian personality, the kind of like breakaway that I got was that these sorts of like radical liberals who were calling themselves Marxists and who hated Stalin, these sorts of people were making the argument that people that grow up in very strong uh, households with a very strong father usually from like a Catholic ethnic European household. These were the sorts of people who were prone to being like radical, like far right or far left people and, uh, in such a way that would oppose um, like, you know, the sensibilities of most Anglo-Saxon and Jewish elites in uh, the United States and in the West. Would I be incorrect in that framing? No, that's, that's exactly what happened. The Frankfurt School was brought over by the American Jewish Committee and they put them to work on a project uh, that was eventually turned into a book called The Authoritarian Personality. And the authoritarian personality then would be used as a weapon against, uh, well, as you mentioned, ethnic groups, uh, uh, ethnic groups that had strong families, a strong father in the home. All of this was now demonized as basically the, the matrix out of which uh, fascism grew. It's a Jewish creation. It's, it's what Yudish uh, Wissenschaft, it's Jewish science. Uh, and this it had an effect because it was all cited in Brown versus School Board, the desegregation decision. That was a completely Jewish decision. Uh, don't take my word from it. It's the the guy uh, Murray Murray uh, Murray Friedman, who was the head of the AJC in Philadelphia, wrote a book about it, uh, about how that uh, you know it, it was about the Black Jewish Alliance and why it collapsed. But this was the high point in many ways of the Black Jewish Alliance. Because it, it created the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement was based on Jewish science. What you have here uh, over this period of time in America is the Black Jewish Alliance. It's it, it it began with Leo Frank, with the lynching of Leo Frank, where the Jews vowed revenge against the South. It reached its high point in the civil rights movement, which was basically a revolutionary movement that overthrew the culture of the South. And it died in 67 because the, the blacks got tired of being bossed around by these Jews. Well, I think, came back, yourself, I think came you came back with Black, uh, black Lives Matter. I was going to say, you yourself, I'm pretty sure you heavily cited this one black communist writer in Jewish revolutionary spirit who essentially uh, came to the conclusion that the civil rights movement in the United States was primarily led by uh, northern, uh, northeast uh, Jews, uh, northeast Anglo-Saxons. And that um, they hired people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and made him accept really weird premises like 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 Zionism, for example, and that they they abandoned any sort of notion of like black economic you know self sufficiency and trying to gain economic justice and more autonomy, and instead went down a route of well, let's just put black people all over like um, ethnic European or like white neighborhoods instead. And I think that was a pretty salient uh, discovery that you came upon um, with that author, because 
yeah, to me, it doesn't feel like this was a genuine, the movement that was genuinely led by blacks that wanted to be economically self-sufficient. No, the, 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 the man who was uh, the author of black nationalism was Marcus Garvey, who was a, a Jamaican. And he had a huge following in New York City, big parades. Uh, 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 and the Jews didn't want black nationalism at all. They, there's only one nationalism that Jews like, and that's uh, Zionism. Uh, and every other nationalism is is uh, bad news. And so what they did was basically use the NAACP to destroy Marcus Garvey. It was the first thing the NAACP did, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, because Marcus Garvey showed up there at their headquarters before this happened and said, wait a minute, there are no black people here. It's all Jews. It's yeah, just yeah. Jews, <laughs> Jews using blacks as their proxy warriors. And so they destroyed, um, they destroyed Marcus Garvey and his movement. And then the, the, the key word then became integration. So integration basically destroys your ethnic group. <laughs> it's ethnic suicide. And that's what happened to the, to the black people. There were, there were ethnic, they, they were on their way. They were an ethnic group. I think that blacks were an ethnic group. What should have happened in, in the Catholic church is they, instead of having blacks come in and take over uh, uh, Irish neighborhoods, you should have given the blacks their own parish. And consider them an ethnic group like every other ethnic group. It didn't happen. And uh, we'll never know what might have happened if they had gone down that route. But basically, that's what happened. They, they, the, the black culture that existed before the civil rights movement was basically taken over and destroyed. And those yeah. people were displaced by the new elite, uh, which was basically the integrationist uh, Jewish proxy warriors that became known as the uh, civil rights movement. Yeah, very well put. I think uh, it would have been a very interesting scenario had the uh, black Americans been able to have been converted to Catholicism in mass. Um, so now I had a few questions here from like audience members that are sending me questions. So I'm going to read you the first one here. It says, uh, so this is one from my friend Marcus. He is Polish, uh, grew up in America though, but he identifies as Polish, not white. And he wants to ask you, what is his best advice for those of primarily Catholic ethnicities in the U.S. for keeping and reinforcing their faith, especially those who are from families that have somewhat regressed into Protestantism? Okay, for, first of all, from a practical point of view, the parish has to be revitalized because the parish is basically the local organization of the Catholic Church. And every every the entire world is covered with parishes, and they're all geographical and this is the way you associate with people with Catholic identity. The other point is that I'm, I'm dealing with this with other countries, that we have now uh, Catholicism demands a level of consciousness that it did not demand in the past. And uh, you have to understand history, and you're not going to understand history simply by going to school because that's all going to be false history. The problem, The main problem with the church right now is that it doesn't understand psychological warfare. It doesn't understand its own history. It doesn't understand how certain groups like the uh, American Jewish Committee and uh, B'nai B'rith tried to subvert the Second Vatican Council. Uh, it has embarked upon a disastrous campaign of pretending the Jews are our friends when every historical evidence points in the exact opposite direction. These are the type of things. Why does God allow uh, these catastrophic defeats? Because God can bring good out of evil. But the good that we bring out of evil is first and foremost consciousness. 
We have, we have an understanding now because of our exposure to evil that we did not have before. So in order to do what, to, to, to complete this, to protect yourself, to protect yourself from identity theft, which is the main problem that Catholics face right now, is you have to become educated. And you can't just take that for granted anymore by going to X university or so on and so forth. You have to take your own responsibility for your own education. In terms of, let's in terms of specifics, in terms of you're Polish, that's great. You're Polish, you speak Polish. Uh, you're going to, if you stay here, you have children and chances are they're not going to marry other Poles. And so the only way you can really be Polish is by being in Poland. And you can have these transitional cultures, but you have to get reconcile yourself to the fact that if you're going to stay here, your identity is Catholic. It's not going to be Polish anymore because your children are probably not going to marry Poles. And, I, and if that's the case with your children, it's even more the case with your grandchildren. And that's the situation that I've, you know, I've seen now that I have uh, my grandchildren, children, grandchildren, my family. It's inevitable because you live here. The identity you have here is Catholic. That's the only identity that's going, the only ethnic identity that's going to perdure here. Wonderful. And then I got another question here. It's from my friend who's half Greek, half Cuban. He says to ask you, E. Michael Jones, how conservative white Protestants, explain how conservative white Protestants go against the teachings of Christ with their greed and worship of capitalism. Okay. <laughs> That's a, there are a lot of things to talk about there. Capitalism was basically the, the became the religion of the Reformation. It evolved naturally from the theft that began with the, the, the Reformation stealing of church property and developed over all of these centuries. The identity of conservative, which I think has died at this point, but that was basically Anglo culture masquerading as some type of political philosophy. It was all pretty much ethnocentric. And because it was ethnocentric, it simply didn't have the roots. And that's, it's just sort of uh, passed by, by the wayside. The, uh, what we're seeing now is the emergence of something that has to be deeper than that. Uh, because English culture is simply not deep enough. It's empirical. If you want to talk about the history of philosophy, we're talking about empiricism. Empiricism is radically anti-metaphysical. And if you don't have uh, an understanding of metaphysics, you have no sound foundation in this world. So the Catholic Church has all of these things. Uh, the, the Catholic Church is now coming of age in America. In, in many ways, I'm, I'm in the example of this. My immigrant parents, uh, grandparents, on both sides, uh, where my Irish grandfather was a successful tradesman. Uh, but I am the kind of the flowering of that because I got a PhD, I'm an American, uh, and I understand the whole, the, the, my roots uh, in a way that, uh, and, and my, the connection of my roots to world history in a way that no one, no one in my family ever understood before. I'm not trying to brag here. I'm just trying to say that there was a con. It was just a trajectory of people coming over here. Digby Balsall said, "If you uh, if you work hard for three generations, your your children will enter the faculty lounge." I'm exactly doing that. He was the age of my father. He lived in Philadelphia, where I grew up. 
That's exactly what happened. But what happened also is that when we got to academe, the whole academe was taken over, even Catholic academe or especially Catholic academe. So now we're in a situation where you have to uh, fight that. And I'm, all I'm trying to say is that all of this happens for a reason. And the reason is consciousness so that we can have some type of mature understanding of how to go forward. That's what's got to happen. Yeah, great, great answer. And I know that was a pretty uh, hard question to nail down because there's a lot of uh, implications and history behind all of that. So totally understandable. So I have a question from my friend. I believe he is uh, of Indian ancestry, and uh, but he's uh, culturally more Swiss German than anything else. He wants to ask you um, whether you agree. So it says, asking Michael Jones whether he agrees that China as a superpower is number one in resisting the liberal world order that propagates out of the Judeo-Masonic Anglo-America. And if you do see it this way, what will China have to do to successfully break the shackles of the liberal world order without being dragged into a war with um, America? Uh, China is an example of the worst of both worlds. So what is the worst uh, thing that it picked up from Europe? Well, it was communism, Marxism. And it added that to a basically pagan base that has been uh, suppressing Christianity for centuries now for, for various uh, historical reasons. Uh, the Chinese are an ancient uh, culture, a resilient culture. They underwent humiliation uh, at the European powers at the hands of the English largely uh, in the 19th century because of the opium wars. The English simply sent warships up their rivers and just obliterated one town after another. And it was humiliating for the Chinese and they are coming back and, uh, they are a world power. There's no question about it. Uh, they have, uh, the whole point of the Anglo American empire is to dominate the seas. The British Navy is Leviathan, the sea monster, and it can do to you what it did to China by sailing up the rivers and destroying you. Uh, it's Godzilla. Uh, that's what happened. That's what Godzilla is, the Japanese way of trying to deal with this, this phenomenon. So they've, they've already done it, and they've done it thanks to American complicity. But let's get more specific here. It was the Jews on Wall Street who basically engaged in this orgy of leverage buyouts that basically uh, 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 destroyed the manufacturing base of the United States of America by buying up those countries, loading them down with debt, and then outsourcing all the jobs to China. That has made China a great manufacturing power, the biggest manufacturing power in the world right now. And manufacturing is the source of all wealth because labor is the source of all wealth. So that's the situation now. And uh, the United States' uh, uh, irrational support of Israel, their, uh, uh, their use of sanctions as a weapon against 40% of the world's population has led to the situation where China, Russia, Iran uh, have basically consolidated the Eurasian landmass. And that's the exact opposite of what the Anglo-American empire wants to see. But I think at this point, they're powerless to stop it. They can't stop it now. There's nothing they can do about it. Yeah, very good answer. And then um, I want to kind of ask you this, since we were touching on the topic of China quite a bit, you know, I've actually, um, I remember I took a university course a while back on the history of China by this professor. Um, he was actually straight from China. And one of the most interesting parts was whenever I did this assignment that was specifically talking about the Jesuits who went to China and were attempting to uh, 
you know, try to convert people, you know, from China into, uh, into Catholicism. And actually there was a debate on whether China should try to be absorbed into the uh, new Spanish empire in a similar manner in which the Philippines was. And I wanted to ask you if you could explain to my audience, what was it that, um, like how much success did the Jesuits have in trying to convert Chinese people? And what was the main uh, conflict that occurred that prevented China from being absorbed into new Spain? Well, I, I, as I said, I mean, I have nothing but praise for the Jesuits of, the, of that period of time. And so exactly what I talked about in Paraguay and in Quebec, it happened in China too. Matteo Ricci showed up and learned Chinese. Now that's not easy to learn. No. Okay. And not only did he learn Chinese, he was so well-versed in it. He wrote one of the Chinese classics and he was a Jesuit and the Jesuits at this point were believed in Logos. And so how do you talk to people you've never, who have no experience of your culture in a completely different language? Well, he talked about the broader telescope. You talk about the stars. You talk about the universe, and you come up with a better calendar. Well, now they've now you've got their attention because you have some type of contact with ultimate reality because you understand logos, and God is logos, and that's the whole gist of the Gospel of Saint John. So he's making tremendous uh, progress here. He's got to the point where he can talk to the emperor and he can talk in Chinese. So you have to be able to talk to people in their language. I don't that's you're never going to proclaim the gospel unless you can do that. That's what the church realized when the Jews expelled St. Paul from the synagogue. We have to talk, go to Greek now because otherwise we can't we're not going to succeed. So Matteo Ricci do, reaches this point but now you've got this controversy in Rome called the Chinese rights controversy. They have their religion. Uh, they had uh, something called Tao which uh, is the basis of their religion, and it sounds like Logos, uh, and we can, maybe we can work with this, but they have ancestor worship as well. And so the question is, is this idolatry? And so the Jesuits were saying, no, it's, you go to the uh, cemetery on Memorial Day, and you put a wreath on your mother's grave. Why is that idolatry? This is what the Chinese are doing. Maybe it's a little bit more refined, but we can work with it. Well, the Dominicans didn't like it, the Dominicans eventually won the day and they said it was idolatry. And so now you have Dominicans showing up who can't speak Chinese. And worse than that, there's a bishop who thinks he can speak Chinese. And then he gets finally gets to the emperor and the emperor makes a fool out of him because he can't even read the four characters on the wall. <laughs> and at this point, the, the emperor says, I'm tired of this. Now it, to get, we, to give the guy credit. Okay. There was a lot of, battle over trade. The Dutch were in Japan. The English were in Japan. There's a battle over who the Dutch Indies company, the British East India company, they're all fighting over who can control the trade routes here. And they, they want to eliminate Spain and Portugal, who were the first people on, on the scene here. And so they're trying to poison the mind of the bonzas in, in Japan and also poison the mind of the, the Chinese. And so at this point, the, the emperor throws up his hands and says, I'm sorry, I'm just banning it. It's over. Tremendous loss uh, of what might have been. Again, I don't know why the same thing happens wherever the church spreads. Something bad happens. Whether you lost Quebec to the Iroquois and the and the and the English, you lost Paraguay to the to the Freemasons, and now you lose China because the the um, the Dominicans are too stupid to understand that it's not uh, worship, and so. 
what what happens? So you have a, a now you got a, a Portuguese Franciscan who shows up in the Chinese village, and he's holding up a crucifix, and he's waving the crucifix, and he's speaking in Portuguese. Well, wait, they're not going to understand that. So obviously, there's a translator there. Well. <laughs> It's not easy to translate Portuguese into Chinese when you're talking about things like this. I think it goes back to St. Paul who says, I preach Christ and him crucified. you got to do a little bit more than that. And Paul was not good at this because he, he blew the speech at the Areopagus where he's trying to talk. They should have talked to philosophers on their terms. Anyway, that's what happened in China. There's a Chinese church now. Uh, there are millions and millions of Catholics in China. The government wants to control them. you got a, a government in China that is basically the worst of both worlds. So it's communism for the people at the top and it's ruthless capitalism for the people at the bottom. And they're trying to work out something. Now, to, to, on the other hand, uh, I had took a Chinese lady out to, to lunch here. Uh, she was here studying Logos at the University of Notre Dame. And she's told me they just doubled my salary. Now, it shows you that there are intelligent people in China, okay? And they understand you've got a billion people, you've got over a billion people there. That's a big market. And if you're cheating them out of a decent wage, your whole co uh, you're, you're going to suffer economically. And now there are smart people who are doubling the wages there. And this is going to pose a big problem. I don't think there's any going back now because the United States sold its birthright to the Chinese for cheap, for, for short-term gains. As I said, the Jews who orchestrated that or, um, orgy of liberal uh, leverage buyouts at that time, and I it was Kissinger and Nixon, back. right? Am I? Is no, that that's that was before that. That was the opening of China. That was a brilliant move on Nixon's part, and that had that was sinister in its own way because it was it, it, it allowed it said we'll we'll give you technology if you institute the one child policy, which was a disaster. I'm talking that was in the 70s. This is at least 10 years after that. Uh, where they're trying to exploit the whole situation, mm. domestic situation. Gotcha. And I have a question from a Filipino audience member who messaged me. He's asking you, uh, Dr. Jones, do you think that um, the Philippines would be an ostensibly Catholic country and not an Islamic country if it weren't for the bravery of the Spanish conquistador and their Indian allies that they brought into the Philippines in order to Catholicize it? Yeah, well, uh, India's, uh, I'm sorry, the Philippines is an example of what could have happened. Could have happened in China. It didn't. Could have happened in Japan. It could have been a whole, I don't know, because, probably because uh, they they had that large Spanish presence there that remained undisturbed. And so Catholicism was allowed, to, could take roots there. And so you have a, a, a dynamic population that uh, is now spreading all over the world. So it's, it, it looks like the Irish, I don't know what's holding back economic development in the Philippines, but uh, they're, they're exporting people, uh, whereas, uh, which is what Germany and Ireland did until they got their own industry up and running. Uh, that's the, the I'm, I'm, we're dealing with the same, the similar situation in East Africa. East Africa is uh, Christian, largely Christian now. Uh, I've been to Kenya, I've been to Tanzania. It's being deliberately held back because of uh, neo-imperialism. Uh, the, the East Africans don't know how to mobilize labor. And the only way you mobilize labor and create a dynamic 
manufacturing country is if you start with textiles. It's the hist simply the history of economic development. And that is being systematically uh, denied, uh, th systematically thwarted uh, by the White House uh, under uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin, a Jew, uh, got a complaint from the Jew, the Jewish rag pickers in New Jersey, who were the main exporters of cheap clothing, used clothing to East Africa. The East Africans woke up, realized that they needed to put tariffs on that. And as soon as they put tariffs on it, the United States threatened them with sanctions. This is economic imperialism. And this is what's holding back East Africa. And it, it, to be honest with you, I, I've never been to the Philippines. I don't know enough about it to understand what's, what's going on there. But I knew the, the, the Catholic population of East Africa is being held back at this time because of this imperialist uh, blockage of the mobilization of labor. Yes, to me, it certainly seems like the Catholic and East Orthodox members of Africa are definitely uh, being put in a stranglehold by, like, you know, the American Empire, NATO, etc., because all of these people that want to ostensibly go their own way, protect their ethnic religions, protect their way of life in terms of like not wanting to legalize things like gay marriage and all of these other things that are becoming commonplace in the West, these people are getting hit hard by uh, sanctions. And, you know, nobody really cared when Obama was sanctioning these countries because, oh, Obama's black and this is wonderful. We have a black president, despite the fact that, you know, there was the first black president, quote unquote, that was um, putting these, these sanctions on these African countries for just wanting to preserve their natural way of life. So do you feel like in Africa, you've seen a lot of uh, pushback um, in terms of like, uh, sort of like what the West is trying to impose on them now, even to this day? I see a lot of potential. I see a lot of potential there. I gave a talk in Nairobi uh, based on Logos Rising. is uh, a school full of bright young kids, um, all wearing Catholic school uniforms. I started to realize I, 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 had, I came up with a solution to the whole problem <laughs> of uh, used clothing. And the, the solution is Catholic school uniforms because you can't buy them in the Matumba market. They have to be made because uh, you, it's just not part of uh, used clothing. Yeah. So if you, if you could coordinate, so I said, let's, let's just coordinate Catholic schools with local cotton production. And I got to talk to the chancellor of the diocese of Bungoma. And he told me that basically his father put him through school by growing cotton. Well, there's not one cotton seed left in Bungoma because of this cheap clothing undercuts the price of any cotton cloth possible. There will be no economic development in Africa, in East Africa, until they eliminate Matumba, which is the Swahili word for used clothing. It's not going to happen. There's only one way out of poverty, and that's clothing clothing manufacturing. That's historically the case. It sounds odd, but that's historically the case. There's not one ma uh, manufacturing power that didn't start off by manufacturing clothing. You could begin with Florence in the 14th century and the production of wool and then leading to silk. Go to Germany. Uh, the Fugger family began, the great financiers, they began with uh, uh, the creation of a new fabric called fustian in the 16th century. England in the 18th century, America in the 19th century, China and, and Korea in the 20th century, they all got their start with uh, cloth manufacturing. 
same thing. I don't see any way out of the situation in Africa. And it seems to me it's easy enough to resolve, but only if you can mobilize labor and mobilize the consciousness of the Catholic Church there to see the source of the problem. Once, once the Catholic Church gets mobilized, I don't care where it is, you will not be able to stop it. Wonderful. Yeah. So I think I'm going to be just about uh, finished with this interview here, unless the audience has any more pressing questions that they want to ask or they can put in a super chat question. But I just want to say, Jones, you know, when I first saw you in 2016, you know, you said a lot of things that um, made me upset, especially because I had went to Catholic school during most of my life. And then eventually I became an atheist around age, like I think like 13 or 14. And I felt like I went in a very dark place whenever I embraced atheism. I felt like I started to take on a more uh, inorganic racialist sort of like identity. I started kind of wanting to blend into like white American society, despite the fact that I am a mestizo from Colombia whose parents fled during the drug wars of Pablo Escobar in the 90s. And I feel like ever since I have talked to a lot of these Hispanic guys who you've talked to before, like, uh, for example, Noel OG de Rancho, you had an interview with him. He's played a big role in helping me uh, kind of uh, uh, develop mentally and like embrace my true identity. Uh, I feel like people like you, though, this even though I, I read all of your stuff years or a lot of your stuff years ago, I feel like looking back on it now, I'm learning quite a bit. Um, and like it's all starting to come together to me. You know, I'm going to Spanish mass uh, pretty much every week with my wife, and I think I'm happier than I've ever been uh, prior to becoming an atheist. And people like you, I just want to make it clear, you played a big role in doing this to people like me. Like, um, the reason I am like the way I am now is undoubtedly because you played a role in that. So I just want to personally thank you. And um, well, th thank you for thank you for sharing that with me. It makes me feel I've made some done some good things in my life. But uh, what I'd like to say is just to extrapolate from your experience, just think if uh, a billion Catholics had this type of uh, awakening, this type of consciousness, they would be unstoppable because they're a force for good all over the world. And the main thing holding them back right now is their ignorance. They don't understand history, their own history. They don't understand the role that the church plays in human history. All of these things could could be changed could change overnight because consciousness doesn't take long to change. I agree 100%. So I'm going to end the 